0: Dot com slash sacred text today to get ten percent off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P dot com slash sacred text. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, I want to let you know that someone had to unfortunately cancel their coming on our Harry Potter pilgrimage. It will be Casper and I in Sussex in January. And because we have a spot available, we want to encourage you to sign up. You can find out more at Reading and Walking with. It's first come, first serve, and we really hope that the spot gets filled and to see you in Sussex in January, me and Casper reading Harry Potter. Okay, here's the episode.
1: Chapter 10, The Rogue Bludger. Since the disastrous episode of the Pixies, Professor Lockhart had not brought live creatures to class. Instead, he read passages from his books to them and sometimes reenacted some of the more dramatic bits. He usually picked Harry to help him with these reconstructions. I'm Matt Potts
0: and I'm Vanessa Zoltan
1: and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text.
0: Matt, before we start today's episode, we want to let everybody know that we are having a little bit of a merch sale and we are launching a new shirt. It is very cute. It has Matt's Patronus on it, a bear.
1: It's an adorable bear.
0: Everybody go to NotSorryWorks.com. We have a sale going. We have new pins on there, new patron saint pins, including Dobby, the patron saint of trailblazers. And I will say that I think a pin set is a great stocking stuffer or one for every night of Hanukkah. Just saying. So go to NotSorryWorks.com and check out our merch.
1: Vanessa, this week, our theme is dignity. What story can you tell us about this theme?
0: So I'm going to tell a story about the most dignified person I know, who is the nine-year-old who I love most in the world, Amy. And just as an example of her dignity, we have Saturday morning breakfast and Ellen, Peter, and I will be like in our underwear and t-shirts and Amy will come out with her like collar already perfectly tucked out of her sweater and her pants and her hair brushed. Like this is just like a very dignified child. And so she has all of these great skills, but sadly, Amy cannot wink. And it's not her fault. This is like a biological thing. She can't wink. Her sister can't wink. Her mother can't wink. Her grandmother can't wink. There's just like a problem in her family where they are not people who can wink. And Amy is a striver. And so it really bothers her that she can't wink. Amy, in addition to being the most dignified person I know, is literally my favorite person in the world to annoy. I love bothering her. And so often at dinner, she sits across from me and I will just wink at her. And then she makes this huffing noise. She goes, because she gets so annoyed that she can't wink back. And this has been going on for literal years. I've been tormenting this child since she was like six years old on this one topic And one night at dinner recently, I looked over at her and I winked at her and she just winked back. And I gasped and she very slowly got up from the table and went, yes. And I was like, oh my God. And Ellen and Peter had missed it. And I was like, Amy, Amy, show everyone that you can wink. And she very calmly winked at both of them. And I was like, how long could you do this for? And she said, I've been practicing for a long time and I've been able to do it for a month. But I wanted to wait until you winked at me. And then she complained. She was like, you haven't been winking at me lately. And so she had to just wait me out. And the reason that I'm bringing this story is because obviously what she did is very cool. To be clear, if I ever had the wherewithal to teach myself something like how to wink by practicing for hours and hours, I would have immediately gloated, done a victory lap around the world, screamed, shown off. And the wherewithal that she had to wait until the perfect moment is incredible. But I also think that there's a real dignity to it, to the belief that you are capable of presenting in the best possible way and the patience and the lack of gloating. And so one of the questions I have in this chapter, Matt, is, is dignity tied to being cool in this way?
1: Thanks, Vanessa. That's a great question. I mean, when you're telling, as I was listening to your story, I was thinking, well, this sounds like a great patience story right? (laughs) Because we did Patience a few episodes ago, right? And it is a great Patience story, but so also is your story about your short short set. However, when you got to the point where you were like, if you had learned how to wink as a child or in the present, you would have like (laughs) sent videos to everyone you know, right? And there's something about restraint, that restraint that you said, like the the restraint from gloating, that kind of self-possession, like, you need this more than me. And so I'm going to wait. Like, that's the kind of, I think that's what you mean by cool, right? Yes. And that's, that's really interesting. It's also interesting that, that like there's this relationship between the self and others, right? Like dignity has to do with like how others regard you, but it also has to do with how you allow others to regard you or how you invite others to regard you or something, which is what you say is, what you see is uh, going on with this story, which I think is a, is a great story and really illuminates that complication etymologically, dignity comes from the Latin dignus, which comes from an ancient, a more ancient than Latin root, which they believe has something to do with like uh, payment with like worth. So it has to do with like correctly valuing something. Right. And so when you think about like there. So there is something about like Amy's restraint, which is like, this is awesome that I learned this, but also like it's worth that moment when I do it back to Vanessa. It's not worth, like, rushing down the stairs and showing everybody, right? The worth of it is going to be in both directions, like, not worth too much, not worth too little. It's going to be in that moment when I can do it. So I'm going to hold on to it until it has, like, that absolutely, like, worthy moment, right? Uh, and so maybe that maybe that does have something to do with it. But then you can also see how when we talk about human dignity, we talk about, like, the value of humans or whatever, right?
0: Yeah, I'm very curious as to whether or not dignity is something that's entirely self-possessed or someone can take it away from you. Someone can definitely treat you in an undignified way, like in that opening sentence of this chapter being a a comedic version of it, right? Like making somebody act out a fake version of your life story and howl like a wolf. But is is dignity, like Amy does it, entirely self-possessed? right? I did not respond in a dignified way. I was like, oh my God, show Peppa, show Ellen. Oh my God. But she maintained her seriousness and I would argue her dignity. And so obviously human beings have humiliated each other in ways that are so creative and thorough that it's not even worth enumerating. And I'm wondering if there's some human capacity for dignity that just like can't be taken away. Matt. It's time for your 30-second recap. You will bring dignity and honor
1: to us all. Thank you.
0: On your mark, get set, go.
1: Uh, so they're in dark arts and uh, and Lockhart's a dweeb, and they but they need him to get the the permission to get the book out of the restricted and he gives the permission and they go to the library and Madame Pence is not happy to give them the book but they get most potions and they go to the the to the girls' bathroom and Myrtle's crying and they find out they need a piece of crab and coil and that's gross and Ron doesn't want to do it but but Hermione convinces and then there's a Quidditch match and, and uh, the Slytherins are awful the Bludgers violent but they they he, arms gets broken and they get they win the game and the and Colin Creevy has been petrified. <laughs> It wasn't excellent. I'm good until about 25 seconds, and then I have two-thirds of the chapter to cover. But that's okay. It's okay. I I have—can I tell you? Today, I want uh-huh. I want to say this for our listeners. I want this to go into the episode, AJ. I want to say this for our listeners because I, we have listeners expressing concern for me. I want you to say that today, I had no anxiety. Before the 30-second recap, all, all of my protests were were purely performative. I was actually looking forward to it. I felt like I had the chapter in my head. My failure belies that confidence, but but I felt like I had the chapter <laughs> in my head. I was actually looking forward to it, had no anxiety, so it was good today. Growth. Vanessa, it's your turn for thirty seconds. I'm gonna count okay. you in. Three, two, one, go.
0: So Harry is just so annoyed at Lockhart, but they need him to sign this permission slip. He does. They go into Morning Myrtle's bathroom once they have the the potions book in Hermione is like, it's going to probably take us about a month to get all of these materials and to brew everything in order to make the Polyjuice potion. Meanwhile, there's a Quidditch match and there is a bludger that is trying to murder Harry. He falls off his, of his broom. Lockhart tries to like fix his arm, but actually makes all of the bones disappear. And while Harry's arm is regrowing, Colin Creevy comes to the hospital wing because he's been <laughs> petrified.
1: That, that was excellent. Thank you. you. You brought dignity and honor to us all. I have like a meta dignity question about the book series, not about anything that happens in particular in this in this chapter, because I feel like I had I feel like I had a realization about the book series, which is probably obvious to everyone else who's read this through this book series more (laughs) as closer to it. Right. But like if you remember at the beginning of our reading of book one, I said, oh, I think book one's my favorite book. Because it's a book that can really stand alone. And it tells this message of love, which I think is important. And I still think those things are true. But at the end of our reading of book one, I was like, yeah, but there's more to this message of love. Like the stakes are the stakes are bigger. The stakes are more than just one person. And what I see happening in book two, and I don't think I noticed this the first time I read through this with my kids, is how book two really is the book that sets up the whole series, not book one. Right. Book one, we have the lesson of love and love is kind of the redemptive arc of the full seven book series. But in book two, with the emergence of the questions of wizarding supremacy, with those really coming to the fore and in so many ways in this book, with both house elves and those who are muggle born. Right. The, the stakes of love shift from the personal to the political in, mm-hmm. in other ways, from the private to the public, right? Like, mm-hmm. who you love and how you love others is not just a question of, will it save me in my time of need, which is the question of book mm-hmm. one. In book two, it becomes like, oh, this this has stakes for creatures, for all kinds of creatures, right? And that really becomes like a question of dignity, right? Like, who are we going to value? Who has worth? And what how do we protect the worth of those who who we deem to have value and so like i really see i really understand this second book now as like as completing book 1 and also opening up the rest of the series in a in a really crucial critical way that the first book just didn't and i think the way it does it is really related to questions of of dignity
0: i think i found my new favorite harry moment in this chapter today which speaks to exactly what you're talking about matt he dobby comes and visits him in the hospital wing and in is trying to convince harry that he needs to go home that he isn't safe here and harry says to dobby my best friend hermione is muggle-born i have to stay here she's going to be one of the first people attacked and you know in our very first episode of harry potter and the sacred text i talked about how i believe That sacred reading can teach us about commitment, hospitality, and loyalty of this kind, right? That I'm going to put my body in danger in order to try to make my best friend safer. And it never, somehow never occurred to me that Harry explicitly states this thesis in this chapter and it It is his love of Hermione that takes us from personal to political for him, I think, in a really beautiful way.
1: Yeah. I think Hermione actually calls that out of him in an Mm -hmm. indirect way. When she kind of shames Ron for complaining about having to to drink a piece of crab and goil, right? Like a toenail or a hair or something, right? Because that's undignified and and Ron is grossed out by it. And Hermione's just like, okay, let's just remember the stakes, right? And what's actually the, the valuable interest here what's actually at stake in whether or not we get this potion right how much do you value me that's the question like I'm the I'm the muggle-born person here so is it worth you doing something slightly uncomfortable or undignified to protect to protect me and I feel like the echo of that which is I found to be a really powerful moment like right in the Mm -hmm. text I think Rowling has these moments where she shifts from like the humor of oh gosh Ron has to drink a toenail to like this kind of serious moment and the moment lands more forcefully because of that, that kind of abrupt transition and then echoes through the rest of the chapter. So I really kind of heard Hermione's voice in Harry saying to Dobby, I can't, I can't leave Hermione here.
0: Yeah. What's more important, me going home and being a little bit safer or potentially Hermione being,
1: being murdered. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. This chapter really hit me hard in a way that it hadn't before.
1: Yeah, I think, I think it did me too, right? And made the whole book hit me hard, right? I think, in all honesty, to our listeners, my recollection of reading this book, I wasn't a huge fan of book two because it seemed like the voice in the wall was a little bit contrived and the confrontation with Tom Riddle at the end didn't seem as interesting. And the flying car chapter flying that you did, right? The flying car. Right? And, but, but I'm starting to really like this book because I see, like, in this chapter, I was like, oh, the stakes have just been opened up in a serious way. And around these two moments between friends where interpersonal individual kind of affection and friendship and love has to take on public and political consequences right like it's not Mm -hmm. just about you and me it's not just about our friendship or our friendship actually has implications in what we do with the whole community and that just opens up in this chapter i think you're right and totally related to questions of dignity again like who are we going to protect what lives are worth saving and protecting and at what cost
0: so this this question of dignity also really is helpful for my trying to understand Lockhart because he's somebody who in some definitions of dignity, as far as like caring a lot about your outward appearance and, you know, always being tidy. And he would be someone who you would think would care about dignity. And yet there's something so incredibly undignified about him. And I always lose track of what motivates Lockhart because, right, especially at the end of the chapter when he publicly is like, I can heal Harry and he knows full well that he can't. And then I just so publicly humiliates himself by making Harry's bones disappear. Like what would motivate somebody to, that is what I have nightmares about. Is somebody thinking I can do something that I know I can't do? Like, that would be an actual crisis moment in my life. And yet he seeks them out. Help, help. What would motivate someone to do this? A pathological need to be the center of attention. And who cares about dignity? I must be the center of attention at
1: all costs. I mean, I I don't know how to diagnose Lockhart, but I think Lockhart... At least half believes his own lives. He doesn't full believe them because he knows he's not as good as he thinks he is. But I also think he's deluded enough to think he's better than he actually is. Right? Like he would run away from a vampire in the forest, but he thinks he can probably mend a bone. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I What I don't understand is the then looking at the arm that has no bones and being like, I basically fixed it. Right. But you see, and, the
1: bone's not broken any longer. Yeah, that's right.
0: And I is that like a is that an attempt to reclaim some dignity?
1: Yeah, right. It's like to assert the worth. It's like to say, like, yes, this was right. Oh, you thought I was gonna just do a simple healing charm? No, <laughs> right. <laughs> the bone is not broken. As I said, it would no longer be right. I mean, it, it's a it's an attempt to like assert. It's spin, right? It's an attempt to say, like, this was a worthwhile action, right? You just misunderstood what I was up to or something, right? I think the thing about Lockhart is, like, again, around this question of if dignity is about worth, recognizing the worth of others, I don't think that he's kind of sinisterly intends Harry any harm in this moment. He doesn't want to make him have to take Skelligro and go through all this pain in the hospital ward, right? He actually wants to mend the arm. And he's just kind of oblivious to or indifferent to Harry because if he was actually more worried about Harry's well-being, he would be more cautious about his the spells he's tossing around. But we know by the end of the book, this kind of need for self-preservation does become sinister because he's willing to obliviate Harry and Ron at the end of the book. And you get the sense that this is something he's done before in order to protect his stories, right? So there's a point at which... His indifference does become sinister, where indifference to another's worth or indifference to another's inherent dignity, in one moment, it's relatively harmless, and the next moment, it causes some pain, as in the case of the Skellige, and in, the, in another moment, it becomes, you know, kind of super destructive and even violent. And so, like, when that indifference escalates, how long people hold on to that indifference? You know, that's that's a different question. I think people can can in everyday moments be indifferent to the needs of others or the worth of others. But when confronted with the reality of other suffering can be shocked back into like paying attention. Right. But it doesn't seem like Lockhart is capable of this, which makes him dangerous at the end of the book.
0: Yeah. It makes me wonder, like, what this man's like primal wound is right because it does seem on some level that what he's constantly searching for is an overblown sense of dignity in order to cover up the fact that he feels as though he has none right like yeah. there's this machismo element to it that seems like you know clearly overcompensation yeah. which is tragic right like it, it's sad in many ways if it wasn't so irritating yeah. and then dangerous
1: if we're thinking about dignity as worth, there's a sense in Lockhart's approach to it, which is fundamentally, and I would say, incorrectly comparative. For me to have worth means that others have to be worth less. And so part of the project of of articulating my own worth is to also articulate how others are less worthy, which is why Harry's not quite as famous. You'll get there someday, Harry, even though manifestly he is more famous, right? Like right. the only way I can have worth is if you have less than me, right? Which is... The contrary to the question, I think, that you were starting to raise with your story at the beginning of, of our recording, Vanessa, which was about, like, does everybody have some? Doesn't everybody have some? That doesn't depend upon our comparative worth to others, but just is worth because we have worth, right? It's not about proving that we're better than others. It's just we all got it, right? And that's not that's not the world that Lockhart lives in, right? He, he yeah. needs to prove others are less worthy.
0: Well, Matt, I feel like this leads us to this question that I had at the beginning, which is, can people take away other people's dignity? Yeah. Right. And I feel like we see this in several places in Lockhart making Harry howl, and then in Dobby setting this bludger off chasing Harry. Harry has to, you know, do things on his broom that look silly that Draco teases him about and is like, oh, are you doing ballet as if ballet is somehow an insult? Yeah. Because of the traditionally considered gendered aspect of it. And so sports, I think, gives Harry this cover of the undignified aspects of the way that he seems to be flying, right? He's doing it for this, like, very macho reason of trying to win a sports game. But this question of whether or not you can make others perform in a way that takes away their dignity is... Something that feels incredibly high stakes to me because we, as the human race, really do thrive at humiliating one another. Yeah. But I I still do believe that there is something intrinsic about human dignity that even when somebody is trying to entirely sublimate you or, uh, you know, trying to make you look silly on your broom, that there's a level of your dignity that cannot be taken away from you.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, this is the trick about dignity is that it is social, but we also want to say that it is just fundamental to what it means to be human. Humiliation, on the other hand, is purely social, right? I mean, like, humiliation is is based upon a construct of what the community decides is worthwhile, and if you don't live up to that, then we humiliate you, right? And that humiliation, right, is real and is felt personally and individually, right? But the part of dignity which... Is fundamental to the person, like we'd like to think can't be can't be compromised by that, right? There's another way to read Harry's evasion of the bludger as profoundly dignified. Right. Yeah. Look how much skill he has. Look how graceful he is. Like, I mean, to call someone ballet-like while maneuvering, like that, like what is more dignified than a ballerina of any gender, <laughs> right? Like, totally. like this is what I mean about it being purely social, right? The context here which makes that gendered insult, like a humiliation rather than a recognition of worth. But there's another way you could think about it, which is like, if you said it differently, or if a different a different person said it, it would actually be recognizing the dignity and worth of, of Harry's actions. I still remember when I was a little kid, I used to watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood every day. And I remember a handful of episodes. And one of the episodes I remember is when Lynn Swan, who was a famous receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers back when I was a little kid... He came on the show and he told Mr. Rogers that he wanted to show him about something he likes to do that's really important to him. You know, but like, oh, he's going to go take him to do football. And Lin Swan took him to a ballet studio and showed Mr. Rogers how Lin Swan likes to do ballet. And because he says it helps him, it helps him be more flexible and agile and it gives him great joy. And I was just like, I mean, the fact that that's stuck in my memory, right, means that of of all the episodes of Mr. Rogers I watched means that it, it jarred something in my expectations for what what this this football player was going to do. But also, again, it's all about the framing of a a comment like this. I was thinking of Lynn Swan when I when I read this chapter, because I was like, ballet, like that's great. Harry must be amazing. Right. But it's clearly an insult in this situation.
0: Right. And if Ginny ran up to Harry after the game and was like, it was like watching ballet, watching (laughs) you up on that broom, it would be the greatest compliment in the world. And it still is right. Like Draco is just a sexist tool and like that is but like that doesn't take away the inherent dignity of draco which i feel like is what we always try to teach kids about bullies right is that they are degrading themselves by bullying they are not actually degrading you by bullying even though it's so hard to remember that right and to remember your inherent dignity when someone is trying to take it away from you
1: yeah and like i said because humiliation is social when yeah the social group around you humiliates you. That's real. You've really been humiliated. Even if your dignity hasn't been compromised and in a fundamental way, you're still humiliated because the humiliation exists in the group, right? And that's that's hard.
0: I mean, and, and that brings me to Dobby, right? Because yep. this clothing thing, clothing as freedom for house elves seems entirely bound up in humiliation, Right there's no greater character of dignity than Dobby. Dobby has a sense of great purpose. He is willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good. He is willing to be in pain if necessary in order to be committed to the things that he prioritizes. And yet, right we find out in this chapter Harry asks like why do you wear that weird thing that you wear? And Dobby says, "Well, I'm not allowed clothes," right? Which is clearly a, an attempt at humiliation and a signifier to the rest of the world that you were enslaved, right, that, that the Malfoys and that the wizarding world is trying to maintain. And so, right, like a sock, right, at the ability to dress yourself becomes this, this sign of other people seeing you as having dignity. And so I I think there's just something very beautiful about the fact that you, you can't take away Dobby's dignity. You can like not give him access to clothes and he is still going to find a way to be dignified. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think that's right. I think the house elves Dobby in particular and the house elves in general, just like once again, lift up this complicated relationship between kind of fundamental dignity and like the degree to which dignity is conferred by a group. Right. Because especially if it's around the question of worth, because house elves, obviously the wizarding culture depends upon house elves and house elves have access to magic that wizards don't have access to. Like house elves clearly are worthy, worthwhile, like they have immense gifts, right? But wizarding culture has decided that they're not worth anything and can be enslaved and and tortured basically, right? And so they have this worth and we can recognize this worth, but we also have to acknowledge that because the culture around them refuses to acknowledge that worth or covers over that worth or erases that worth, like, then they also are forced to live undignified lives, right? To dress in pillowcases and so forth, right? And so, yeah, and it's, again, this is brought into relief throughout this book. Like, this is really is the question. It's the, the ways in which wizarding supremacist culture or the Death Eaters or Voldemort's movement routinely and pervasively misappraises the worth of others, right? Like, the Weasleys... Arthur Weasley's fascinated by muggle technology. He sees that the muggles are clever and creative, even if it's kind of patronizing at time. He sees that they're clever and creative, but for the Death Eaters, muggles are worth nothing, right? right? And Hermione can see that the that the house elves like have worth, of course, and deserve to be to be recognized, but they're worth nothing to the Death Eaters, which will be their downfall later, right? Like the like this fundamental refusal to appraise the worth of others, to to fundamental failure to recognize the dignity of others really is like the ideology at the core of, of Voldemort's ascension. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. deserves a super soft super comfortable pair of me undies lounge pants there are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun expressive prints and they come in sizes extra small to 4 xl guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody and like i said already they have unmatched comfort their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater it's also breathable stretchy and oh so comfy making it ideal for all day wear me undies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T. That's MeUndies.com slash H-P-S-T for 20% off plus free shipping. Me undies, comfort from the outside in.
0: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason... Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, I have one more question. I feel like you, you know this about me. I have very mixed feelings about sports. I love sports. I grew up as a sports fan. I love playing sports. And yet professional sports and the like- The way that we expect people to risk their bodies and their lives for sports, the fact that it is often a tremendous amount of mental anguish that goes into professional athleticism, right? Like, I have profoundly, profoundly ambivalent feelings about sports. And I feel like this Quidditch match, like... It entirely encapsulates the dignity of sports and the indignity of them because it only in a stupid sports match would somebody say it is worth Harry potentially dying rather than forfeiting the game by having the bludger inspected. And like that is such a particular form of logic that uh, drives me just up the wall with yep. incredulity and yet like harry gets celebrated for it absolutely without a doubt they should go to madam hooch and be like this bludger right like yeah and instead they're just so afraid of being mocked by slytherin and being publicly humiliated yeah. that they would rather harry die in glory
1: Yeah, I I agree, Vanessa. I also love sports. And I think probably with less ambivalence than I ought to and less ambivalence than you. But I have to say like a couple of favorite moments in this chapter, Harry's moment talking to to Dobby, Hermione's moment talking to Ron. But my my third moment was George saying to Oliver, like, it's your fault that he's willing to keep doing this because you're the one that said, get this snitch or die trying, right? Like, and I love that George is just standing up for Harry in that moment and, like, seeing the stakes accurately in that moment. Like, this is dangerous. We need to stop. The Slytherins are idiots. Who cares if they, if they ridicule us, right? Like, I love how clear-eyed George is in that moment and how clear he makes the stakes. You know, having played sports in high school, like, you also just you love to play. Yeah, You just love to totally. play sports. And so, like, Harry, I know he's scared, but also he loves it. Right. And there's also something about recognizing the fact that this he's doing something he loves, which makes it more complicated for me than just saying, oh, this is your body's been compromised by social structures around you that put you in this position. All that is true. And we should be critical of that. But I think we also have to listen to the person who's playing who says, I love this. Don't don't ask me to stop. Right. And so, like, it's tricky. I also
0: just would like to say I think that this is a structural problem. It should not be that you have to forfeit in order to get the bludger inspected. Like this yes. is a rule problem. Right. You should be able to ha- say this bludger is broken yep. and not have it be a forfeit. Ugh. Yeah.
1: I agree. Also, I why are these all intramurals? Like why don't they play yes! other wizarding schools? Play like build schools. Let's be all on the same team instead of instead of like at each other's throats. I don't know.
0: Also, it means that there are only like six games a year. I know. And that you only play in three of them. It's so, ugh. Just to be clear, once again, everybody, Harry falls, breaks his arm, and is in so much pain, he faints. Quidditch. Quidditch. Matt, it's now time for Havruta, and it is your turn to bring a question. What question do you have for us?
1: Thanks, So Here is my question. It's a difficult one. It's, I mean, maybe our conversation so far uh, betrays that it. it's on my mind. But the question is, how much should we sacrifice for one person? Or how much is one person's life worth against others, right? And I'm thinking about this partly because I'm reading book seven with Sam right now, before bedtime. And so this question comes up a lot, but to keep it in this book, I'm thinking about Dobby and Dobby just pleading with Harry, go home, Harry Potter, go home. And then right afterwards, Colin Creevy is brought in, petrified, spared from death only because he's always got his eye on his camera. And I feel like Dobby, you are already using magic in an illegitimate way, at least by the laws of the wizarding world, you're already using your magic to protect Harry. Why did you just shut down the school? Why did you let anybody board? Why did you let anybody board Hogwarts Express? Like, if you know the Chamber of Secrets is going to be opened, why is Harry the one that you want to protect, rather than the whole school, rather than the whole, all these these children who are going to Hogwarts? So the question is, how much is one life worth? I mean, I think my answer is Harry's answer to Dobby. I think this is maybe why this question was raised up for me, because I think Harry's answer to Dobby, Hermione's here, I can't leave, by implication is also the whole school should be closed to everyone, not just to me, right? And so the answer, what is one life worth, is as much as every other one, <laughs> right? And so we need to go about the business of, of protecting them all. Um, and I think that that is where the book is going But we don't really see it yet because I think we're with Dobby. We love Harry after the first book. We know that he's at a particular kind of risk because of Voldemort. And so when Dobby shows up at the beginning of this book and says, I'm trying to protect you, Harry, you cannot go back. We're with him in this chapter because of Harry and Harry's echo of Hermione. We see, oh, nobody should be here because the whole place is not safe. And Colin and Mrs. Norris and later on, Justin... They are all worth saving and all worth the extraordinary means that Dobby's going to. And Dobby doesn't see see that yet, but but Harry does. And so I think the text does. And so I think that's the text's answer for us.
0: Hmm, it's a beautiful answer. Thank you for this question. It's so funny because Judaism, I think, sort of has two answers to this question, which is one that, you know, if you save a life, you save the world. There's no yeah. greater mitzvah or act than saving one life, And then also there's just like a profound lack of belief in martyrdom in Judaism, right? Just saving a life includes your own life, right? So um, defending yourself is just as worthy. If you save your own life, you've saved the whole world. And so the question is, right, when it's one life against another. And what I love about what your answer is saying is that it, it never really is, right? Like there's always this system, this, you know, lever that we can pull that's like, as soon as we've gotten ourselves into a situation where it is one life being necessary to die versus another the we're in a wrong right. situation right. right like whenever we're in a trolley problem situation, shut down public transit right yeah. like the, the, yeah. and and i I love that answer so matt, my counter question is. Why doesn't Dumbledore come to that conclusion, right? Why doesn't Dumbledore, at the end of this chapter, he says to Professor McGonagall and Madame Pomfrey, the Chamber of Secrets has been opened. And why isn't his response, and therefore the kids all need to go home, because them surviving is more important than them acting out scenes from Gilderoy Lockhart's book. And there's obviously a narrative answer, right? Which is that it's more fun to have everyone together at Hogwarts. And I know I've talked before about how like, I believe one of the greatest sins in the world is like not realizing when things are an emergency. But I think that the other answer is like not letting other people's hate shut down our lives, Hmm. right? Of I'm not gonna let you you know, wizard supremacists decide that I'm not educating kids. Of course, I think Dumbledore should be, like, sending owls home and being like, if you want to take your kids out of here, I understand. And let me send you home with syllabi so that you can be educating them at home. And, right, right, like, I I do think that there should be minimum half measures. But I also think that one of the most beautiful and most dignified things that the human— race does is stand up in the face of bullying. You know, there are stories of people in concentration camps fasting for Yom Kippur, right? Like, even when you are starving and only given sort of one cup of soup a day, saying, I am going to abstain from eating even that in order to observe the thing that you are persecuting me for, I think is really beautiful. And so... Dumbledore saying, "Well, I'm just going to educate muggle-borns even more." Yeah. I think is in and of itself a beautiful act.
1: Yeah, that's a great answer because I hadn't when you first asked your question, I went the other way. I was thinking this overconfidence. It's them it's the little bit of Lockhart in all these wizards which is like, "Oh, we got it. This is the safest place in the wizarding world. We can protect these students even though the evidence that they can't is right in front of them." But I like your answer so much more, right? It's the I was gonna say it's like the "Keep Calm and Carry On," which is so famous from the Blitz, but there's something more about it, which is like I think the the gloss you put on it, which is like if we stop educating Muggleborns, then you get what you wanted, right? No, we are right. gonna we're gonna keep them safe. We got to keep them safe, but we're not gonna let you tell us who gets a Hogwarts education. We're gonna actually give the Hogwarts education to the folks who who deserve it, which is everybody who's here, right? And maybe even some people who aren't here, right? But 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 yeah, that's that's. That's a great answer to your question.
0: Well, Matt, thank you so much for that really beautiful question. I'm really grateful.
1: Thanks for your question and your answer, Vanessa. I'm really grateful too. Our voicemail this week is from MJ.
2: Hi Vanessa, Ariana, Matt, and the rest of the HPSD community and team. This is MJ calling from Portland, Oregon, having just read chapter 6 Gilderoy Lockhart in which we meet Justin Finch-Fletchley and Colin Creevy, who both take a moment to share some details about each of their respective parents. ...reactions to their admission to Hogwarts. Justin's mother had hoped that he would go to Eton. Colin's father, as a milkman, was also surprised. And I want to send a blessing to both of those parents... ...as well as to the Granger parents... ...and the many other offstage characters... ...who are muggles... ...whose loved ones are magical children... And I want to bless them for the immense work that those families must have done while dealing with and processing the the fact that their children have an element of their identity that they never could have understood before and that differentiates them from the rest of the family and not for nothing puts them in grave peril as they attend school. And that's especially true for Justin and Colin later in this book and continually for Hermione. The only other families that we really get a close look into as they deal with this dynamic is Lily Evans' family, which doesn't go particularly well, and and the Dursleys. Um, So I'm just thinking about the, the families that have done the work in order to support their children in doing this thing that they need to do in order to live to their fullest potential. It almost makes me wish that Hogwarts took the time to put those families in touch with one another to create some kind of affinity space so that uh, these families could learn from one another, find support from one another. And also lean on each other rather than tasking their children to do some of the emotional labor involved in um, the, the anxiety that must come with being a muggle with a magical family member, um, kind of like a flag situation, you know? Anyway, I'd love to know if that sparks anything for you all. I love the podcast. It is a balm, truly.
1: MJ, thank you so much for that voicemail. I, I think it's so wise and so perceptive. And uh, and the the interpretation you make of it or the gloss you put on it is so, so useful. You know, I spent a lot of the first book identifying with Hermione's parents because I also have a daughter who's 11 who's going to a new school, and that was very stressful for me. And I just imagine, oh, my gosh, what if we had been sending Cammie to boarding school? And what if the boarding school had been around as you really nicely phrased it, MJ around like an identity that was absolutely foreign to our family or new to our family and that set our child apart and put them within a new community like all those things like I think about Hermione's parents on the platform at King's Cross at, on platform nine and three quarters and like what is going on in their heads and how much they're doing to hold it together and just do the best thing for their daughter and the the way you describe it and the way that you describe what so many of these parents must be going through is really well stated and really apt. So thank you, MJ.
0: Yes, MJ, thank you so much for that really beautiful voicemail.
1: It's now time for us to remember the lost loved ones for whom our community grieves. Aiden Price, 19, the light in every room the glue of our community. We shall miss him dearly. Nell Ewing, 76, a mother, grandmama, and voracious reader. Joanne Austin, 68, a wife, mother, grandmother, writer, and a New Yorker cartoon enthusiast. Arlo Philip, seven days, born 11 weeks early, a first child, grandchild, and great-grandchild. Father Steve Cooter, 79, a Jesuit uncle, educator, and friend. And Melinda Ann McKnight, 78, beyond kind, the best listener. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Vanessa, who are you blessing this week?
0: I feel like MJ's voicemail really set me up beautifully for this. I want to bless Colin Creevy's dad. We know that he is a milkman who is new to this world and he's been very supportive of his son going to Hogwarts. But this just must be horrifying news to get that even though he might have all the faith in the world in Dumbledore and Dumbledore probably says, look, we're going to be able to revive him at minimum, he's missing a lot of school time. So you sent your child away to not learn. But I just can't imagine how scary this news is. And we don't get a sense that he gets to come and visit. I mean, maybe that's all off the page. But anyway, I just want to bless Colin Creevy's parents for this just horrible news. And I feel like so many parents obviously went through all of this with COVID recently. So a blessing for parents. What about you, Matt?
1: I'd like to bless George. I already spoke about why in this episode. I, I I love Fred and George, of course, but there's just also something about this moment when he is the most clear-eyed on the Quidditch pitch about what the six are. And, you know, for all his kind of goofball antics, like when it counts, Fred and George show up and George shows up here. And yeah, so it's great. So blessings to George.
0: Next week, we'll be reading chapter 11 through the theme of shame with a special guest, Casper TurKyle. Just a few reminders before we give our thanks today. We have a Frankenstein pilgrimage with Dana Schwartz and me and the Colette pots all going on this trip. Find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. We also have a tarot as a sacred practice class with Naomi Westwater, who's been a guest on this show and has run our Wizard Supremacy class, where you can also find out more at NotSorryWorks.com. And then we have a merch sale, including our new t-shirts with Matt's Patronus, all at NotSorryWorks.com.
1: We have been produced, as always, by Not Sorry Productions, a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Arianna Nettleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to MJ for their voicemail, to Lara Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkile, Stephanie Paulsell, and all of those who sent in the names of their loved ones this week. Um, do people know The Trolley Problem?
0: I think, I think they do. So, people right? watch
1: Good Question, right?
0: Right. You, you mean The Good Place?
1: The Good Place, I meant, yeah. Good Place, sorry.
0: It's a good question. <laughs> the, good, <laughs> the Good Question is one of the things that people call The Real Question.
1: I know.
0: <laughs> people never remember the name of that podcast. Be, people by
1: watch people The Real including place, My right? mom.
0: <laughs> my mom's like, ugh, I loved this episode of Good Questions. I'm like, thank you.
1: What it's called. Good questions is a good name for a podcast.
0: <laughs> Probably.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80 percent less than clay litter.